electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to the special Fed edition of The Exchange, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. I'm Kelly Evans. Now I can say alongside oh, Tyler right. Matheson. We're entering the final 60-minute countdown to the next decision on interest rates. And the question is not so much if they pause, as is widely expected, but how they do. Is this the end of the rate hike cycle, or will Powell and Co. signal that rate hikes could resume later this year? But we've got all the angles covered from the stock market to the bond market to the economy and how rising rates are impacting you, the consumer. Plus, the view from Washington, Representative Brad Sherman and Senator Bill Haggerty on the Fed decision, what's next in Congress after getting the debt ceiling deal done, and why the government may be facing a greater risk of a shutdown in October. Mm, before all that, though, let's start with the markets, which are up again outside of the healthcare space. Dom Chu live at CNBC headquarters. Hi, Dom. Hi. So, Kelly, Tyler, to your point there, it is generally an update for the markets overall. But as is the case with many Fed days, a holding pattern until we get that big announcement announcement and maybe more importantly, the press conference from Fed Chair Jay Powell afterwards. The Dow Industrials, I will just put that aside for right now because we're off about 100 points, one third of one percent. I'll tell you why in just a couple moments here, but it's at 34,184. The S&P is up about one quarter of one percent, 11 points higher, 52 week high there, 4380. And just to give you an idea of the trading range, we were up Roughly 22 points at the highs, down three at the lows. So, again, fairly wait and see for the S&P. The Nasdaq up about one-third of 1%, 48 points higher, 13,621. Interest rates always a key focus on a Fed decision day. Let's show you where rates stand right now. We are seeing a little bit of a bid to government bond prices, forcing yields lower. The five-year and two-year note yields, you can see here, for the two-year, just about 4.63%. The five-year, 3.96%. The 10-year benchmark note yield, drifting a little bit lower, now below 3.8%, 3.79, the last trade there. And I mentioned the Dow and the caveat asterisks that we'll put there. The Dow, as you may recall, I just showed you, is off about 100 points right now, down 100, the only major index lower. United Health, very largely weighted Dow component there, is down huge right now, about 7.5% to the downside, $455 a share. The reason why, at a Goldman Sachs industry conference yesterday, company executives had alluded to the notion that many of the folks out there, perhaps older Americans, who deferred some of those elective surgical procedures during the COVID pandemic era might now be playing catch and getting those procedures done. Rising surgical costs, rising health care costs overall could be pressuring maybe margins a little bit there. Some of the health insurers are the ones taking it the worst. Now, United Health's a big, a big story here because Tyler Kelly, if it wasn't for United Health, the Dow would actually be up roughly 140 points right now. So a swing from minus 100 to plus 140 just because of UNH. Watch the health insurers. I'll send things back over to you guys. It's one of the things that explains the importance of understanding that the Dow is a price-weighted uh, market barometer, not a market cap-related one. Uh, Dom Chu, thank you very much. So we got less than an hour to go now, uh, and the market seeing a more than 90% chance that the Federal Reserve will pause today, not raise interest rates. It what happens after today's decision and what Jay Powell signals on that front that investors will be watching for. 
for what comes next. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is just a few miles away at the Federal Reserve with the very latest. Hi, Steve. Hey, Tyler. Yeah, the pause is expected, but we're all on the edge of our seats to say, see if it's characterized as a skip and route to another hike or the long-awaited end to this very aggressive rate hike cycle. A warning? I don't think the Fed knows yet, and I'll explain why. So among the questions we're trying to figure out is, does Powell say rates are now, quote, sufficiently restrictive? That would suggest, hey, no more rate hikes are needed at this point. But do officials then raise their rate and inflation forecast in that summary of economic projections suggesting more hikes could be on the way. All of that is tied into the considerable uncertainty on the economy that supports the idea for the Fed to pause, at least for now. Among the things the Fed's trying to gauge are the economic effects of the 500 basis points of hikes they've done, tightening at banks, which have led the Fed staff to predict there'll be a mild recession later this year, a trillion dollars of Treasury issuance from the, uh, that could soak up liquidity in the markets, and, of course, potential weakness in payrolls that we saw in last week's jobless claims numbers. The market is priced for a pause, as you said, and then a hike. And then there was a good part of the Fed's open market committee that supported that stance in their March forecast. Take a look at this. Just one official in March forecast a year in funds rate below the current level of five and an eighth. Ten are at the current rate and seven see more hikes, some of those two or more. So it won't take much to raise that median forecast. So we're watching three things today. First, the possibility of dissent from among the more hawkish Fed members. Second, a potential compromise where the Fed pauses but says, hey, the economy is on a very short leash now because of high inflation, a so-called hawkish pause. And finally, the possibility of the Fed's own median forecast rises, signaling support for at least one more hike this year. Guys? You know, Steve, maybe because I don't follow it as closely as you do, but it seems to me that we have arrived at pause land rather more quickly than I would have anticipated. It felt like six weeks, two months ago, we weren't a pause really wasn't the base case. Now it is. How did we get here? Well, Tyler, you're confused, in fact, because you have been paying attention. You should be confused <laughs> because if you if you follow the tail of the tape of this intermeeting period, remember, Powell came out and told us, hey, the risks are kind of balanced and told us there'd be a, there could be a pause here. Then you had a bunch of Fed folks come out and say, you know what? We think we ought to do more. Then Jefferson, the nominee for vice chair, comes out and does like a, a legal redirect. He comes out, wait a second. Remember the chair a while ago said pause? Well, that's kind of where we're going right now. And that so you went up, down and up or, or down, up and down or pause, whatever you want to say it. Over three times in the course of this intermediate period. So, yeah, and plus you also have still high inflation. So what's going to maybe make this meeting remarkable is this will be the first time that the Fed makes a policy decision on the come when it comes to the issue of potentially lower inflation. They have not taken the forecast at face value yet. This is the first time they're going to say, you know what? We have some stuff in the forecast that tells us inflation is going to come down. For example, the base effects of, of June coming out. So that's one of the things that the Fed is looking at. And so they're going to do this for the first time on, a fly, on the fly. All right, Steve, thank you. Our Steve Leesman reporting, and we'll see you in just a moment. Meantime, Citigroup is among the few outliers, very few, still calling for a hike today, to Tyler's point. They're saying, quote, core inflation by a number of measures has been at or above 5% for two years. Despite markets pricing very little chance of a hike, we maintain our base case for a quarter point. But our next two guests disagree. They see a pause today and no hikes for the rest of this year. Joining us here in the studio is Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group, and Subhadra Rajapa is also with us. She's head of U.S. Rate Strategy at Society General. Welcome to you both. Jamie, I'll just start with you and, and kind of react to the, the atmosphere out there. Um, this is widely expected, but City says, hey, there's still a chance they could hike. 
Well, it's an asymmetric thing for city. If you're right, you're a genius. If you're wrong, nobody's paying attention. So you to think? me, absolutely. I think they look bad. They're the only one out. No, people like no, to go with the group. People, people do this all the time. This is something that happens when people are calling for recessions. They call, keep calling and calling and calling. When it finally comes, they say they take the lap around and say, "I won." That's exactly what they would do in this case. But we're going to pause. The Fed needs to pause. We have a credit crunch that they have to factor into the deal, and I believe that we have not yet seen the the effects of it. In fact. I think Nick Temeroff said it best in his Wall Street Journal article where he talked about tapping the bottle of ketchup where you tap, 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 and then all of a sudden the ketchup rolls out of the bottle all at once. That could be what we would see with the credit crunch. We don't see it, we don't see it, and all of a sudden we do. And I think that's why the pause and probably the pause is going to be permanent. And this is partly why you've been a little critical of the Fed, right? You thought they should have paused last time. Uh, and you have other criticisms of the Fed. Why? What do you think they've done wrong? Well, I mean, it's obvious. Because right now the economy is okay. Well, the, the economic growth is good because they printed ungodly amounts of money, right? I mean, you flooded the system with money. Through, but, through, through quantitative for, easing. But before that, I yeah. mean, before even the pandemic, you had QE oh, yeah. and, and, and other and interest rate pauses in 2019. So basically what happened was the Fed primed the pump and then they got it they waited too long, and then they had to raise interest rates rather quickly. So basically, they created the problem that had to fix it. So that's why I've been critical of it, because they were too late. They let inflation get stoked and actually become more permanent and entrenched. That's the problem. I think that's a fair point. Subhadra, let's bring you in here. What are the implications across rates and, and the financial markets? Yeah, no, I think that I agree with what Jamie's saying. It makes sense for the Fed to keep rates on hold for the remainder of the year. Uh, and as far as uh, policy goes, I think the most important thing that I heard over the last three weeks is from, uh, you know, Governor Jefferson, where he said that there is about a one year lag between policy and the transmission mechanism into the broader economy. So which means that some of the rate hikes that were delivered last year this time, the impact of that is still being felt by the broader markets. So in this sort of context, it makes sense for them to keep policy on hold for the remainder of the year, you know, from, from where we are right now, we don't really see any imminent sign, signs of a recession. But you look at credit conditions broadly, the senior loan officer survey and other surveys, you tend to see that, you know, the banking uh, credit crunch is getting a little bit more crunchier. So as we progress through the year, if rates are static where they are, I think that that should do the job of tightening uh, financial conditions, uh, leading us potentially to a recession in early 2024. In this sort of context, I think you're going to see a gradual decline in 10-year yields over the remainder of the year. So you just mentioned the idea of a possible recession in, uh, thinking about weddings, uh, recession in 2024. If, if my recollection is correct, last year everybody was saying, well, the, the recession is not going to be a 2022 thing. It's going to be a 2023 thing, maybe first half, maybe second half. We get into 2023. Now it's become a 2024 thing. What's happening here and why is this widely talked about recession not happening and seemingly being pushed off farther and farther into the future? So our economists have had a call for a recession in early 2024 as early as August of last year. So we've, we've kind of kept that messaging very, very consistent. Well, bless your hearts part. then. That's good. Good for you. <laughs> um, but, you know, broadly speaking, it's the, it's the strength in the labor market. You know, we've seen the unemployment rate rise from 3.4% to 3.7% in the last print. But the unemployment rate remains very, very low. And the labor market, for the most part, remains very, very tight. You look at the, the Joel's job report, the amount of openings versus, uh, you know, the unemployed, it's still 
at 1.8%. So uh, you're looking at really uh, a very, very tight labor market in the, in the big scheme of things. Consumers have remained extremely resilient. So that's really pushing out the window for the recession uh, into 2024, in, in our view. And it, and it makes sense. You're going to see the, the, the tightening of credit conditions feed through through broader markets. The labor mm-hmm. market's going to weaken as we progress through the year. But for now, things look like they're okay. Subhadra, real quickly then, would would anything in bond land for you be a screaming buy right now? I mean, if you think we're heading into a slowdown, I just saw the five-year yield is still up at 4%. Seems like a pretty good deal in the environment you're describing. No, I completely agree with that view, Kelly. Our view has been that if 10 yields get, start getting towards 4%, it's a buying opportunity. If you miss that buying opportunity earlier on this year when we saw 10 yields close to 4% and then that massive rally where 10 years got to nearly 330, I think that this is going to be an opportunity again to leg into long. So anytime you see a sell-off in, in bonds, that's an opportunity for you to go long, uh, long uh, bonds because uh, ultimately yields are going to decline uh, as we head into a recession in early 2024. Jamie, let's talk a little bit about equities and how the current uh, uh, equity market is setting up. You believe that we're about to enter or maybe in sort of a golden era of dividend stocks. And, oh, by the way, the largest concentration of those dividend stocks are not here in the United States, but Europe and elsewhere. Right. I mean, we have seen international markets get plastered over the past decade we, we, we now will probably see that change because international companies, there are 600 of them that actually have dividends that are above 3% versus maybe 100 or so in the U.S. So the opportunity set is just bigger internationally. In addition to that, we should start to see some dollar weakness as the Fed pauses here, and we should start, probably still see some of the European central banks continue to raise interest rates. So the dollar sort of is a tailwind for those stocks as well as you translate the dividends from afar back to U.S. dollars. What are, some of those, what, are, what are some of those dividend payers, whether the U.S. or overseas based? It's going to be mostly health care. I think mm-hmm. that that's going to be, you have farm, large pharmaceutical companies are good players to be Sanofi, AbbVie, others are, those are good examples for where people could go uh, to find good dividend yields. But we're going to see with interest rates so high now, and haven't, we haven't seen this in a couple of decades, dividends are going to become more attractive. You know, $2 trillion of dividends in, in last year alone. And with uh, with interest rates high, there's going to be more competition for capital. So companies are probably going to pass along more dividends as we go on. So it's going to be a good place to be. They're not that tax efficient, though. I mean, you know, I get home and tax. My real bone that I was going to ask you, though, I know we have to go, is if you, you mentioned things getting credit crunchy, and so did Subhadra. Do you really think the dollar is going to weaken in that kind of environment? Should. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you don't think it would cause a strengthening dollar flight to safety globally yeah. under performance of more than it was before last year? No, I think it's probably going to be lower, not not higher. We should right. point out that Jamie's son Ian is here. He has just graduated from high school. He's going to Swanee, right, to play that's soccer. That's so polite. Yeah. Congratulations, Ian. I have a son named Ian. We know you're a good guy. You got a great dad. Congrats. <laughs> thank you. And congrats, Jamie and Subhadra. Thank you very much as well. All right, we're just getting started on this CNBC special edition of The Exchange and Power Lunch. From the Fed decision today to regulating banks, regulating crypto and AI, our next guest has a front row seat to all of it on Capitol Hill. Congressman Brad Sherman of California joins us live right here in the studio next. And then later, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee will weigh in. 
Plus, Moody's Mark Zandi says the Fed shouldn't sacrifice the economy to the altar of a 2% inflation target, and he agrees that pausing today is the right move. He'll join us to talk Fed policy, impact on the consumer and the economy ahead. As we go to break, here's this look at the market setup into this. Remember, the last half hour of any Fed decision day under Powell's tenure has been horrendous for the <laughs> stock market. We'll see if we follow that pattern today, but we're starting out with the Dow in the red thanks to UNH and S&P up five points to 43.74, a NASDAQ up 26 and the 10-year just under 380. 45 minutes away, we're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to this special edition of The Exchange. We're a little more than 40 minutes away now from the decision on interest rates, where the Fed is largely expected to pause. Be the first pause after 10 straight hikes, about five percentage points or so. They began last March, making it the fastest pace of rate increases in 40 years. But will the pause become a full stop, be done for this cycle? We still don't have a full picture of the full effect from the recent bank turmoil on the economy. The KRE Regional Bank ETF slightly lower today. Our next guest sits on the House Financial Services Committee, and for his view on the Fed, the banks, and more, we, repre- we welcome Representative Brad Sherman. Good Congressman you. Sherman, welcome. Good to have you with Thank us. Thank you. I'm going to ask you an, uh, an interesting, I hope interesting, macro question about the economy as you see it in your district. How healthy is it on a scale of 1 to 10? Look, we want the economy to be better, so even when it's above average, and I think it's about average now, we're anxious and we want everyone to be employed. We want everyone to be able to afford a house. Um, but I think, uh, you know, people certainly see the inflation. You see more inflation than actually exists. When the price of onions goes down, you don't notice it. Price of lettuce goes up, you certainly do. So I think the economy is pretty, uh, in, in pretty good shape, but not good enough. Do you feel as though we just had uh, Jamie Cox sitting in your seat? He's been critical of the Fed. Uh, I know administrations don't like to uh, talk about the Fed. They let that uh, be the Fed's business. But you're not so constrained. What, how do you think the Fed has played this and its efforts to blunt the effects of inflation? I think they're playing it about as well as uh, they could. Uh, keep in mind, we've never had a COVID like, I mean, we had the Black Death. That was 1300s. Interest rates, I think. There was no low. Fed then. Yes, there was no Fed then. Yeah. So uh, nobody really knows how to run an economy during a, a pandemic like this. They did about as good a job as they could. I'm sure somebody will write a book saying they should have done a little bit more here and a little less there. Yeah. So many different topics we could touch on. Crypto should possibly be one of them, given uh, the massive crackdown we've seen all of a sudden by the SEC. Is this the end of crypto in America? Hope so. Don't think so. Uh, but you hope it, so? Yes. Why? 
Well, you know, this is an investment network, and people might say, hey, it could go up, it could go down. The question is, is it good for America? And the answer is no. If you listen to the promoters, they say they're there trying to insulate, create a financial system that's impervious to the federal government so that it's available for sanctions evaders, so that the U.S. no longer has this major role in, in international affairs. And the definition of cryptocurrency, what does it mean? Hidden money. Who needs hidden money? Tax evaders, let, sanctions let evaders. Let me just try to paraphrase their defense, which might be, hey, we're actually trying to keep costs down for the average American, that the current financial system, it charge, you know, look at the payment networks and the interchange fees they charge just for access to it. Look at the banks, which basically charge you for checking or have all sorts of hidden ways of doing that. You know, whether it's superior or not, their, their argument goes beyond just disintermediating America that. from the global they financial system. They've been around for a while. At one point, they were $3 trillion, and they didn't make it easier or cheaper to buy a sandwich at Subway. You go to Subway, you can use a debit card, you can use a credit card. If you've got crypto, what do you do? You have to change it into money, then, you, then transfer it to your debit card, and then buy a sandwich. It is, not a, it, it is not a payment system. It is not a currency. It is an attempt to make trillions of dollars by creating a currency. Does it need to be regulated out of existence, or do you think that the, that the, that the market will take care of what you would like to see, which is it to be gone. Well, it has attracted so many charlatans, uh, and re it, it certainly needs regulation. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried isn't the only one. Uh, ultimately, I think crypto will fade because of crypto. There is no logical reason why Bitcoin is more valuable than hamster coin. And if hamster coin is there, what about Cobra coin? And then a year ago, I said, well, there's no mongoose coin. Maybe there should be a mongoose coin. And they created one. And for a while, it was worth millions of dollars. Should we just read this as Congressman Sherman is a little you know, on the cautious side of innovation? Because on AI, I, I hear some similar concerns, you know, as, a, as opposed to maybe full throated excitement about what that might bring. Well, I'm, I'm certainly in favor of innovation, but not every innovation. I mean, the Cayman Islands has innovated a, a financial system designed to, for nefarious purposes. We don't need to catch up. Peru is well ahead of us in co cocaine cultivation. We don't need to catch up. So let me, if I may, to pivot entirely from this, but ask about something that really directly affects the cost of living for your constituents. How concerned are they about the lack of insurers in California? You mentioned home prices in your first statement about making home prices, you know, and housing affordable for everyday people. When you have major insurers pulling out, how is that going to affect people's ability to make a go of it? And, and whether it's buy new housing, renew their existing policies, they must be a little scared right now. I don't think they're that scared yet. There's still competition except when you're on the, uh, the urban-rural uh, interface, when you're right there uh, with the sagebrush. Uh, but aside from that, I think people are still being able to get, uh, get insurance policies. But yeah, it's a bad trend, and you want as much competition as possible. And uh, we're going to be talking to the insurance commissioner very Let's soon. Let's quickly about that. pivot to banking. A couple of the large bank failures occurred in your state. Do you see those as failures of regulation, of regulators, or of bankers? Yes. <laughs> All three. Look. Need more regulation. What we need is for the bank regulators to look at interest rate risk. Silicon which Valley. Which they didn't. Which they didn't. Silicon Valley Bank had hedged its interest rate risk and it sold its hedges. Talk about insurance. They canceled their insurance on interest rates going up. They pocketed the money. It goes into it went, went into profits. The profits go into to bonuses. They made a higher bonus in 2022 because they put themselves on a road to go bankrupt in 2023. 
very interesting. Congressman Sherman, thank you very much. Good Pleasure you. having you with us. I think it's the first time on CNBC, or at least on with us. We thank you for coming. First time on the show. We appreciate it. Still coming up, the S&P 500 trading at fresh 52-week highs today. And one of our guests says the political cycle we were just discussing could add fuel to the rally. He explains ahead, about 35 minutes to go until the Fed decision on rates. And a quick programming note, Double Lines Capital CEO Jeff Gunlock will join Closing Bell at 3 p.m. Eastern today. Fresh off Jay Powell's news conference, you never want to miss it. We're back in a couple of minutes. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to our special coverage of the Fed decision. Let's check back in with Dom Chu at CNBC headquarters for a look at what's moving this hour. Dom? Getting a little bit closer to that unchanged line right now, Kelly Tyler. So remember earlier in the hour, I told you that the trading range on the upside for the S&P 500 was up 22 points and down three at the lows. We have now drifted to just up five points, so kind of in, in the middle of that range, but tilted towards the lower end of things. The Dow is still down about 153 points, one half of 1% declines there. United Healthcare was a key part of that downside move. And the Nasdaq composite up just about two-tenths of 1%, up 21 points, 13,594. On interest rate, Fed decision-type days, we always want to keep a close eye on the commodity-related complex there just to get an idea for how the overall economy is faring with regard to that particular lens. The two-year and 10-year note yields, just on the bond side of things, still ticking lower in terms of yield, higher in terms of bond price, uh, softer than expected producer price index number could be behind some of that. WTI crude, though, down about one half of 1% to $69.12 per barrel. Copper prices up about 1% to $3.87. And gold prices right now just about one half of 1% to the upside, $1,969 per troy ounce there. And then one other place to keep a close eye on as well is what's happening overall with the bank sector. The largest banks in America, like J.P. Morgan Chase Bank of America, just fractured up, down, again, wait and see mode. Citigroup, one-tenth of 1% advance there. Wells Fargo flat on the session right now. But the regional banks, undersized performance here, down about two-thirds of 1% for the S&P 500 regional bank ETF, ticker KRE. So, Tyler Kelly, that is your market reset with just about a half hour to go before that big announcement. Back over to you guys. All right, Dom, we'll see you in a little bit. Thanks very much. And coming up, a change in stock market leadership could be around the corner as tightening continues, but with a liquidity drain underway and a presidential election next year, could it be finished faster than investors expect? That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Investors cheering the avoidance of a U.S. default that already feels like ancient history. The S&P up about 2.5% now to sit at its highest level since April of 2022, since President Biden signed the debt limit bill. But not even two weeks after that signing, the U.S. is now facing the risk of a government shutdown in October, potentially, after House Speaker McCarthy agreed to push through spending cuts in an effort to tamp down a revolt among more conservative members of his party. Joining us now to discuss that and what to expect from the Fed, of course, Dan Clifton is back. He He's head of policy research at Strategus Research Companies. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you for having me. What's the number one question concern from, is it Fed? Is it, tell us. Well, I think it's a combination of the Fed and fiscal policy and how the two interact. Mm -hmm. Right now, we got the debt ceiling up. That's a good thing. We're now trying to figure out how to finance that debt. Mm -hmm. And so the Treasury has to reload its Treasury general account. 
They've unloaded a trillion dollars or will unload a trillion dollars of T-bills. And they're trying to drive that T-bill rate above the reverse repo rate so that money will come out of reverse repos. Why do they want money out of the Fed's reverse repos? It seems to be a pretty good deal for the banks, maybe too good of a deal. Yeah, so the reverse repos are sitting on the Fed balance sheet. And so if you take the money out of reverse repos, you're not taking out of the banking sector. So you're preventing a liquidity drain on the bank reserves. Hmm. And in light of bank failures, you don't want that to happen. And they're having some success doing that. But if the Fed is going to continue to raise rates, that reverse repo rate is going to go higher. And investors may want to keep their money parked in that reverse repo rate and not in the Treasury rate. Or it would force Treasury to continue to have to try and drive up those rates. So that, to me, is the biggest issue. It is impacting growth versus value. It's impacting the dollar. It's even impacting Bitcoin. Hmm. And Treasury's had a lot of success over the last couple of days. But their real test will come in the next three weeks. You've got 80 billion of QT. You've got corporate tax collections coming in. So we expect liquidity to be drained in the second half of June and early July, and that could lead to market leadership. So change. that's a liquidity thing that you think is on the horizon. Is the issuance of all those T-bills also a liquidity issue in that yes. the money that's going into those T-bills is coming from somewhere? Absolutely. It is coming out of the economy. But ultimately, doesn't it work its way back into the economy? Absolutely. But we're now financing the U.S. government at an over 5% rate on the short end of the curve yes. that is going to drive up the net interest costs, which we have spoken about. Mm -hmm. And so there is, we're just trying to find the least bad option. We're just, and, and the least bad option still has a significant cost to it. It could work its way back over time, but in the short run, you're in a liquidity squeeze. And it looks a lot like Y2K, where the Fed flooded liquidity into the system before Y2K happened, and then they pulled it back, and then you had the tech sell off. And we're approaching a similar situation. So today. let's go to the question of, of the fiscal side of yep. things. We had the debt deal. Mm -hmm. We had agreements on what the spending cuts yep. were going to look like. Now it feels as though, through the appropriate Creations process uh, that the uh, Freedom Caucus on the conservative side of the Republican Party mm -hmm. are trying to fight a rearguard action, I would put it, to further cut spending even beyond what was outlined in that deal. Is that what's going on here? And does that uh, auger a government shutdown come at, at, September 30? Absolutely what's going on. We may not have a government shutdown. Let's just think about what we went through. A default is a really bad thing. The debt ceiling is a really bad thing. Government shutdown, eh, you know, we've lived with it for 45 days in 2019, right? So pick your poison, and we're going to have a fight over appropriations. But this is part of the process, and I, I, I celebrate the process. I know it's very distasteful for investors. The House may wind up passing a whole bunch of appropriation bills. The Senate's going to pass a whole bunch of appropriation bills. And then the two are going to put those together and try and find some sort of solution. But you, it sounds like you don't think it's going to be a macro event, that, that exactly. people will shrug it off because they'll go, the government shutdown, I mean, that has to be like a 0.005 impact on GDP. A exactly. We had really strong GDP with a 45-day government shutdown in 2019. Now, we're in a slower economy, so maybe we don't have that much margin of error. But this is going to be about what defense stocks are going to do, whether defense is getting an increase or not, what's going to happen to life science tools with the NIH budget. You want to give us and, a quick, uh, you know, defense up, life science up, or both of them get a, get a thumbs down? Well, I think we'll go through a continuing resolution for three or six months. And then we'll come to some sort of resolution. But defense got a 9% increase last year. They're probably going to get a 2 or 3% increase this year. They're a privileged position in the budget right now. Sure. And those stocks have really sold off since the Republicans took over the House in January. And the market began pricing in some of these defense cuts. All right. Dan, thanks very much. Great. Dan Clifton, Strategus. Uh, coming up, folks, the recent regional banking stress touching off a fierce debate about deposit insurance for both individuals and businesses. Last month, Republican Senator and Banking Committee member Bill Haggerty 
propose legislation to increase protections for both, temporarily at least. He'll join us to discuss that and give us his take on the recent debt ceiling deal. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. In an effort to ease tensions between the U.S. and China, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will travel to Beijing later this week, becoming the most senior U.S. official to visit the country in five years. Secretary Blinken had previously planned to go to China back in February, but that trip was scrapped after the Chinese spy balloon incident. Tensions have only ramped up since then, with the two countries at odds over Taiwan, trade and tech, to name just a few ongoing issues. Here to talk about all that and more, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, member of the Senate Banking and Foreign Relations Committee, and he's a former U.S. ambassador to Japan. Senator, great, great to have you with us. Why don't we start with China, because of your experience in that part of the world. Um, Secretary Blinken going there later yes. this week. Uh, what do you think his goals are? What do you think they should be? And are and are they attainable in any sense? Well, I, I think the, the the clearest thing to me is the fact that China, it was, it was reported in the media, had demanded that the FBI not release its report on the spy balloon. Hmm. And as everybody on this show recalls, they violated our sovereignty by sending a spy balloon floating over the United States, hovering over places like Oak Ridge National Lab in my state. Uh, they did it for days. And um, the FBI reports out China's demanded that it not be released. And the consequence would be no meeting with, with, uh, with the Secretary Blinken. I hate to see us kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party and accommodate this. It feels to me like this is a stretch for some type of photo op diplomacy. It's not serious when we're not speaking from a position of strength. If we look at what China has done, in fact, take a look back in the previous administration, the United States Trade Representative undertook a study to see the cost to America of the intellectual property theft, the forced technology transfer, the industrial espionage that China undertakes, roughly $600 billion a year. That's the combined profits of the top 50 of the Fortune 500 combined. That's almost the size of the Defense Department's budget. China has been predatory in every respect, and we should be dealing with them from a position of strength, not again. What does that look like then? What does that look like, that position of strength? We all agree that we would like to mm -hmm. clamp down. Our colleague uh, Eamon Javers has a documentary coming out next week on China and industrial espionage. It is a big topic, and it has been yes. for decades. But so what is getting tough on that look like? We've actually seen it. Uh, I, I served as the ambassador to Japan in the last administration. The proximity to China is obvious. That's why we have the largest component of U.S. military station anywhere in the world in Japan. It's a very tough neighborhood. China is right there. They uh, move through the South China Sea, the East China Sea. They harass. Uh, they create a lot of challenges. When we stand tough militarily, China takes notice of that. I saw that happen in the previous administration. I saw the Chinese back out of the Senkaku Islands and back out of the South China Sea. That aggressive behavior responds to power and strength. When you saw a United States trade representative go over and negotiate the phase one trade deal with China, that was tough talk. That was tough action. And we saw China respond. We need to continue to maintain that type of pressure. And I hear the Biden administration talking in, in, in ways that I would agree with, but I'd like to see them follow up with more action. Do you think it's safer for us to make sure that we send a high level official there now versus pulling that trip? And I, I take your point. I mean, we, no one wants to feel like we're in a situation where we have to agree not to release uh, a key report like the one that you mentioned. Um, it also comes this week, as the Wall Street Journal was reporting, there could be an eavesdropping base 90 miles off the coast of Florida in exactly. Cuba. So the timing of that and the fact that we would still go ahead with this trip, why is this trip so important? Important, do you think? Kelly, you're, you're absolutely right. These are, these are deep, deep concerns. And I don't understand why, if, if diplomacy was your real aim, 
you would be doing this right now. Frankly, if you're trying to advocate America's interest, a strong American interest, I think you would take exactly the posture that you're suggesting. You'd halt this. You would demand that the Chinese stop this, this behavior. Uh, the, the proximity of Cuba to the United States, as we know, is roughly 100 miles. And, you know, China setting up a spy station there, just wholly unacceptable. Again, the spy balloon released the report. Uh, demonstrate to the world that we're not going to kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party. That hasn't happened. So I'd like to see a, a little bit of a shift in our posture there. Let's uh, t transition a little bit to the appropriations issue, which we were talking just before you came on and we talked with our previous guest. Uh, there's action in the House. They're going to send you a bill that may cut more deeply than the original spending deal in the debt ceiling would cut certain areas. What happens when it comes to the Senate? Uh, we're working through that process right now, Tyler. Um, I've met with my counterpart on the committee that has to do with financial services and general government. I'm the ranking member on that subcommittee. Uh, and I just met with our ranking member, Susan Collins, on the overall appropriations committee. We're working through the process right now. Our goal has been to go back to what is known as regular order where we actually work through each normal committee process. We have the opportunity to amend, to debate, and, and create input. What I don't want to see is a train wreck like we've seen in the past, where everything gets pushed off till the end. You wind up in the, the waning days of December passing an omnibus bill, as it's called, with everything piled together Wished in a 4,000-page yeah. mm -hmm. bill. Everything that we can do to avoid that, I think we're going to undertake that. Very quickly, you had a long career in private equity in business, mm -hmm. and you're new to the Senate. What has surprised you the most? Well, I, I've been pleased in one regard uh, with the caliber of my colleagues, both Democrat and Republican, um, a, a, a very, I think, intelligent group of people who I think for the most part are trying to do the very best they can. Uh, the process itself, though, and the, 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 the challenges of navigating Washington are, are quite different from anything I've ever, I've ever <laughs> experienced in business. Yeah. Uh, and, and the impact of media, not only traditional media like we're, we're discussing here today, but also the digital media environment, yeah. very different. And I think it puts a great deal of pressure, and, and, and frankly, it introduces a lot of acrimony into the system that I wish weren't there. All right. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. Very good to be Senator with you. Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, thank, thank you. you so much. Appreciate thank you so much. Still ahead, shares of SoFi hired today after BTIG called it a long-term winner in the neobank space. Remember, about a month ago, Mizuho's Dan Dolev told us he thought SoFi bears were mathematically and intellectually off. And well, sure enough, the share price has nearly doubled since then. Both analysts also expect SoFi to get a boost from the resumption of student loan debt repayments, prompting the need for some refis. While it may be bullish for fintech, Moody's Mark Zandi warns the end of that moratorium is one of the most immediate headwinds to the economy. There he is, walking on over, striding in here uh, to discuss it with the senator. We're back after this. Welcome back to a very special edition of The Exchange. The Fed's fight against inflation has had ripple effects across the economy and the consumer. From what you pay for your mortgage, your car, the rate on your credit card, the cost of living has gotten a lot more expensive as a result of all of these rate hikes. Now, despite that, the consumer has remained resilient. After accounting for inflation, real spending has grown at a steady pace around 2% this year. Our next guest says the prospect of a recession is off the table, but a pause in rate hikes is still the right call here. Mark Zandi is with us, chief economist at Moody's analytics off the table did i say that for, did you? you get that did off you? the table i mean i, I think we can now. avoid a recession odds are that we'll be able to avoid it because of the consumer i think the consumer is hanging tough but uh, uh off the table sounds really strong <laughs> <laughs> you're not feeling that strong <laughs> well you know it's all about probabilities i mean i you know i, I wouldn't dismiss recession risk but i do think they are receding and i do think consumers are hanging in there and as long as they they're not spending with abandon you know they're just doing their thing and as long as they continue to do that and i think they've all they have the resources to to do that jobs unemployment 
excess saving. You know, uh, what their stock portfolios are a little lighter than they were a couple of years ago, but they're still much higher than they were before the pandemic. So I think if you add it all up, I think consumers are you know, in the game. And as long as they stay there, I think we can avoid a recession. Do yeah. you think the Fed, this is being characterized likely as a pause, do you think that means that the Fed is done hiking for this uh, cycle or is this a skip? I think scenario. it depends on the data, you yeah. know, between now and I guess it's late July is the next July, meeting and, and we, we'll get another jobs number. We'll get a couple more inflation reports. Um, I think it'll be a close call, close debate. Um, you know, if, sitting from where I'm looking, uh, I'd say they sh- this is, should be the end of the story. I don't I'm, I'm a little confused. Why one more rate hike? I mean, yeah. it would. In the grand scheme of things, why would that you know make a difference here? So they seem to want to just keep people in a hawkish mood. Though, I think that's think? it. Right? Whether it's using the dots of projections, we'll get at the top of the hour to sort of say, oh, well, we think we might need to do more. Whether using the rhetoric, whatever it is, they just. Yeah. I think they look at the market and they're like, they're off to the races with this pause or whatever, and, and they don't want to encourage. Totally, that. I think that's got to be what it is, right? They they want the stock. They don't want the stock market to come roaring back. They don't want financial conditions to ease, you know, significantly because they still have work to do, getting growth down and getting inflation back in the bottle. That's got to be it, right? Because it just feels a little weird, you know. How otherwise. much of a headwind is student loan, you know, repayment? So I think we say the median payment is about $400 a month. It's going to start, um, you know, in the next uh, month or two here. Small. You know, if you add it up, it's, you know, 60, 70 billion per annum. So you do the arithmetic, that's two, three tenths of a percent of GDP. It's not coming at the greatest of times. You know, it's going to happen here at the end of 2023 going into 24 when the economy is going to be the most vulnerable. So the timing isn't great, but I don't think at the end of the day that does the economy in, no. You know, we didn't get into it with Dan Clifton, but one of the points he has made is that we've rarely had a, a recession in a presidential election year. And we, as everyone keeps saying, it's going to be a 2024 event. Now that could get, make things very complicated uh, in this town. Mark, we'll leave it there, though. Yeah. Unless great. you want to weigh Thanks. in on politics. No, I, you know, I, Dan told me that uh, he interviewed for a job with me 20 years ago. Really? So, yeah, and I, and I was afraid I didn't give it to him, but he said, yeah, I did give it to you. So <laughs> I did give it to him, yeah. He took a better job, though, obviously. <laughs> He's yeah. done just fine. He's done just fine. As and have you, you guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Good to see you. We're just a few moments away from the Fed's rate decision. We will bring it to you as soon as it's out. We'll get the statement. We will get the projections. The press conference is at 2.30. The Dow low was minus 201 today, weighed down by United Healthcare, S&P, and NASDAQ. S&P up 6, NASDAQ up 21. Our coverage continues after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.